Well, good morning, church family. How are we this morning? We're good? That got a little bit better than when Matt asked you. I guess you woke up a little bit. Well, my name is Logan Reynolds, as Matt said. I I have the joy and the honor to serve our college students here at First Baptist Belton. And uh, man, it's a blast. I was sharing this morning how much I love college students just because of the energy that they bring and the vibrancy that they bring to our church. And it's been great to see all the ways in which they have served this body and plugged in over the last year. Um, And man, I'm just, truthfully, I'm just filled with gratitude for all that God's doing in our church. Um, I'm filled with gratitude as I look across this room of all the saints that God has called to himself and loves so dearly. Hey man, I'm so grateful that Andy would give me an opportunity to come to preach to you guys this morning. There's not a lot of churches that get give young, goofy guys like myself an opportunity to preach, and so I'm, I'm just overwhelmed and thankful by that. And so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got a Bible in, in the pew back in front of you. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning. While you're turning there, I want to give you a brief context of what's taking place in this city of Ephesus. So this is the first letter, the first letter that Jesus is going to write to the seven original churches in Asia, specifically to the church in Ephesus. Now, it's pretty neat because there's a lot of cool things that God has done um, in Ephesus at this point in time, at this point in history. God has moved radically. There's been many miracles. If you were to read Acts chapter 19, you were to find that God had moved mightily. As a matter of fact, Paul would spend close to three years in Ephesus at this point, two of which he's going to spend preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. And during this time, it's pretty amazing. What the text says in verse 10 is that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So in two years time of Paul's preaching, all of the, all of the residents in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so Paul is preaching the gospel, powerfully proclaiming it. And you have this massive movement of God working. Now, obviously we can account that to God, but it was also because Ephesus was an incredible influential city at the point of uh, the near ancient East. It was a port city. It was a vibrant, happening place, and you have a lot of people coming in and a lot of people going out. And so as Paul's proclaiming the gospel, people are hearing it, and then they're leaving and they're going to their destinations, and they're taking the gospel with them. And so, again, God is doing some amazing things in the place of, or through Paul in Ephesus. It was the second most influential city in the Roman Empire at the time. Second only to Rome itself. And again, so it's a vibrant, diverse um, very happening place, if you will. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Again, this is Jesus writing to the church of Ephesus. And here's my outline for you A-type personalities. Here's my outline for you. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to give them a commendation, if you will. He's going to say, look, this is, this is all the things you were doing. You're doing well. You're doing this well. You're doing that well. And then he's going to give them a critique. critique. He's going to say, this is what you have missed as a church, as disciples, as followers of Christ. This is what you have missed. And then like a kind, kind, kind father, he's going to then give us some instructions for how do we, how do we get restored? How are we renewed? How do we return back to where we were? And then he's going to give us some, um, consequences, if you will, for our disobedience to those instructions. He's going to say, look, if, if for those of you who do not obey, this is the consequences for your sin. But then, and I love this, he's going to give us promises for those who do obey. 
Again, so he's, he's going to commend them. He's going to critique them. He's going to give them instructions for restoration and renewal. And then he's going to give them the consequences for disobedience and then promises for obedience. And so there's my outline. So if you would, again, verse 1 of chapter 2 in Revelation, he says this. To the church of, or I'm sorry, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just real quick, the seven stars are the people, are the angels by which God has placed over the church in each one of these seven churches to guard, to protect, and to guide them. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So that's just a little context there for you. Beginning in verse 2, look there with me. He says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. Verse three, I know you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. And then he brings this charge against them in verse four. He says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, Jesus says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And so right from verse 1, what you see is intimate language between Jesus and his body, Jesus and his church, Jesus and his bride. From the get-go, what Jesus does is he meets them with intimate languages and he says, I know you. I see you. I know all that is happening in your church. There's, there's nothing that you're doing that I am not keenly aware of, that I am not very much a part of. He says in verse 1, he says in verse 1 that he walks among the seven churches, that Jesus has manifested his presence among them. So he's not a distant, he's not a distant husband from his bride, but rather he is someone who is near. And so he sets up really his, his uh, accountability or his um, respect, if you will, for this church. He says, I'm not a distant father. I'm not a distant husband, but rather I'm one who has drawn near to you, who knows you intimately well. And so when he offers a critique here in just a minute, it's not one who is not keenly aware of what is all taking place in Ephesus. He is not one who is distant from the works that they have done. In fact, in verse 2, he says that I know the works that you have done. And he commends them on four particular things. I want you to get these. He commends them on four things. And I'm talking, these are high things. This is a high bar that the church in Ephesus has set for you and for I. It says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Listen, this church is a, is a kingdom work people. Jesus is commending them for their kingdom work. There's a lot that is happening in Ephesus. In fact, if you were to turn over to Acts chapter 19, you would learn that, again, that Paul is preaching. A lot of stuff is happening. A lot of great things are happening. But you would also see that there's a lot of persecution that has taken place at this church. And so while God is moving, Satan is also very much moving. 
And so there's persecution that is close at hand. And yet despite the persecution that exists, they are remaining faithful to God's kingdom work. They're remaining faithful to God's kingdom work. In fact, there were two particular people who were actually dragged in front of the courts and who were brought before um, the mobs that were, ex- that were rising up against uh, the kingdom of God. And so you see these two kingdoms that are being waged war against. You have the kingdom of God and you have the kingdom of the world. And they're going and they're clashing here in the midst of Ephesus. You have the temple of Artemis that exists, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. One of the most seven wonders of the world exists and Paul is proclaiming the gospel while everybody else is proclaiming the goddess of Artemis. And as a matter of fact, one person in particular explained this. It says in verse 27 of Acts chapter 19, it says, She, meaning the, the goddess Artemis, whom all Asia and the world worship. So you got a lot happening here. you got the kingdom of God spreading and growing rapidly, but you also have what they perceive to be the true God, the goddess Artemis, also very much active and amidst the people. And yet, they remain faithful to God's kingdom work. When persecution lies close at hand, they kept going, they kept moving. The second thing that Jesus commends them for is their holiness. The first part of verse 2, it says, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. This is a church who looked the culture in the face and said, I choose Jesus over you. This is a culture who was set apart. Rather than looking like the world, they looked very different than the world. And I can't think of anything more pertinent for us today. I can't think of anything more pertinent for us as a church today to be a people who look different than the world. As a matter of fact, I'm actually convinced that the way in which the church is going to reach the world is not to become like the world, but to be very different than the world. To look drastically different, to be a contrast society, if you will, from the rest of the world. And these people were doing it. They didn't bear with those who were evil. They weren't listening to things that were evil. They weren't watching things that were evil. They weren't surrounding themselves with people who were evil, but rather they, like the Puritans, remained pure and set apart. But not only kingdom work, not only holiness, but then also Jesus commends them for their sound doctrine and theological foundation. He commends them for their sound doctrine and their theological foundation. He says this, I know you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. Listen, this is a people who has studied. They have studied and they have shown themselves to be approved. They are not just pew-sitters. They are coming and they are engaging They are studying God's word and they know it so much so that they can spot false apostles. And not only can they spot them, but then they can step into the arena with them and go toe to toe. This is an incredible, strong, strong church in Ephesus. In verse 20 of, I'm sorry, in verse 29 of Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders of this. He says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul looks at them and says, look, you got your work cut out for them. 
or cut, you got your work cut out for you. Not only are there going to be people who are coming into your flock, but there's going to be people who, people who come from within your flock. There's going to be fierce wolves who come from in your flock whose goal is to distract you, whose goal is to pull you away from the kingdom of God and towards the kingdom of the world. And so in effort to counteract that, what, this, what does the church do? They get to study him. They get to study and they go to their Bible and they begin reading it and they begin reading it and they're fasting and they're praying and they're seeking the Lord's will and all these things all so that they can remain faithful to God, all so that they can remain holy. In verse 6, he talks about the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were just a nasty group of people, real licentious groups. As a matter of fact, they would be people that we would say purchased cheap grace. You know what I mean by that? They purchased cheap grace. They said, you know what? Jesus died for me so I can do whatever I want. Because of God's grace, I can just live, I can do, and I can be whatever I want because God's paid for it all. And so what you have with these, this group of Nicolaitans is people pulling them away from the gospel. Pulling them away from the true gospel that says, no, the gospel is worthy of all of you. We just saying that it's worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, all of who we are as a people. And they were saying, no, it's, it's fine. You can do anything and everything you want. You want to worship idols? Worship idols. That's fine. You want to live in debauchery? Go ahead. That's fine. That's great. And yet, this people said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to remain faithful to our king. We're going to remain faithful to God's word. And the last thing that Jesus commends them for is having a kingdom worldview. A kingdom mindset. He says, I know that you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. And all of this effort and all of this pushing for the kingdom, they have not grown weary. And they are not building a name for themselves, but rather building a name for the fame and the renown of God. They're building a name for God. It says that you are bearing up for my name's sake. They're investing in eternity. They're investing in the kingdom. They're not investing in the day here and now. They're investing in the kingdom. So that in a thousand years, when they're spending eternity with Jesus and they're a thousand years and they look back on their life, they will see that everything that they went through in this life was light and momentary in the weight of all eternity. Like, I cannot think of a stronger church like if this church called me and said, hey, come be my pastor, I don't know. How would you not say yes to this? They're pursuing holiness. They're kingdom work people. They've got a kingdom worldview. They're strong in their theology and doctrine. And yet what we know from verse 4 is that Jesus says this. He brings this charge against them. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Your translations might say that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the passion and the zeal that you once had for Jesus is what Jesus is saying here. See, in all of your effort to pursue the kingdom, in all of your effort to pursue holiness, in all of your effort to remain unstained from the world, from all of your effort to have a kingdom worldview and a mindset, you have lost 
one thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it's the most important thing. And in fact, he says that you have abandoned it. You have left it for dead, is the literal translation. You have left it for dead. See, for all the good that they have, for all the good that they have and all the good that they're doing and all the good that God is doing through them, it is all meaningless apart from their love for Jesus. See, man, you can go to Sunday school. You can have perfect attendance on Sunday mornings. You can give. You can exceed your 10%. Goodness, you can give to faithful God, faithful future. You can do all of these things. And yet, if you do not love Jesus, it is all vanity. See, we can be a people who are holy, but apart from our love for Jesus, we miss the boat. We could be a people who said, man, you know what? We sent 200 people on mission last year. Over 200 people on mission globally. Wow. But if you do not love Jesus, it is meaningless. And dare I say with the preacher of Ecclesiastes that it is vanity. It's vanity. See, for the Ephesians... Ephesian church, their honeymoon was over. They had abandoned the love that they once had for something else. They took really, really, really good things and made them ultimate things. Church, that's called idolatry. Did you know that you can idolize good things? Did you know that you can idolize theological study? I think I did. I spent four years doing that in in seminary. Did you know that you can idolize holiness did you know even that you can idolize god's word you can take what's a good thing and you can make it an ultimate thing to where your worship and your affections is on those things rather than on the main thing which is jesus so that's what's happening in the church of ephesus rather than valuing god above things Above all things, they put faithfulness to Him above God Himself. Rather than valuing God above all things, they put holiness above God. Rather than valuing God above things, they put theological study above Him. And listen, if I can tell you anything, I want you to hear this. All of our pursuits of knowledge in regard to doctrine and theology are a great and noble thing. But our study of God must always move us to two things. A deeper love for Jesus... And a greater love for his people. Listen, if, though, if, if all that you're doing today is not leading to those two things, your theology is broken. Your theology is broken. It is missing something. If all that you're doing, if, if you're giving, if your attendance, if your study, if your life group, if your community outreach, if all of those things do not lead you to a greater and a deeper love of Jesus, your theology is terribly wrong. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, all that we do as a people of God must always lead us to more of Jesus. Less of ourselves and more of Jesus. It must always push us to a greater love for Him and for His people. The war for a healthy church 
And therefore to be a healthy disciple is won or lost not in our obedience, but in the object of our affections. Listen, you want to be a healthy disciple? We want to be a healthy church. It's not in our obedience or anything that you and I can do or learn, but rather in the object of our affections. To get everything else right and to get that wrong is to lose everything. If your affections are misplaced, everything else that you're doing is vanity. It is meaningless. The church in Ephesus took what Paul told him, told them in Acts chapter 20 verse 29. They took it so seriously that you're going to have people come into your church who's going to lead you away, that's going to take you away from what's actually what you're supposed to be following. They took that so seriously. They took the word of God so seriously that they missed what it was actually supposed to do is to create a love for Jesus. The problem is, is that this is putting the cart before the horse. Our affection for Christ must drive our obedience, not the way around. Anything less will lead to frustration, burnout, and ultimately legalism. And who wants to be that? If I can think of one thing that the world doesn't need right now, it's legalism. But you know what I can think of the world needs? A whole lot of love of Jesus. The world needs a whole lot more of Jesus and the world does not need much of our legalism. That has not done us much good in the years past. But what the world needs is they, they need us, you and I, to fall deeply and madly in love with Jesus, to be transformed by Him, to love others as ourselves. That is what the world needs. That's what you and I need. And so let me ask you this question. Who holds your dearest affections? Who holds your dearest affections? What good things are you elevating to ultimate things? Tim Keller, who's the Yoda of all things Christianity, in his book, Gospel and Life, Tim says this. He helps us diagnose these problems of affections. He, He asks four questions. I want you to write these down if you can. He says this, number one, what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about most? What do you worry about most? What's your greatest nightmare? What are the things that keep you up at night? Right now, it's my two-year-old son. (laughs) It's not my four-month-old, it's my two-year-old. What do you rely on or comfort yourself when things go badly or become difficult? What are the things that you rely on when things hit the fan? And when things start pressing, when life presses in on you, what are the things that you use to comfort yourself? Number three, what makes me feel the most self-worth? Job, career, family, finances, belonging. What is it that makes you feel the most self-worth. What are you most proud of? Your kids? You made a name for yourself, your family, your spouse. What is it that you're most proud of? And lastly, 
What do I, re- what do I really want and expect out of life? What's going to make you happy? What's going to make you happy? So we can ask these things individually, but what if we ask them corporately? What if as a church, Jesus is writing to the church in Ephesus here, he's writing to a collective body of believers. What if you and I ask this of ourselves as a body, as a church? What if we ask, what is our greatest nightmare? As a church, what is our greatest nightmare? That we lose our building? That we don't have enough money to afford faithful God, faithful future? What is our greatest nightmare as a church? What are we idolizing? What do we rely on to comfort ourselves? What are we, what are we lying on? What are we putting all of our chips in, if you will, to comfort ourselves? What makes us feel the most self-worth? The fact that we've got a couple hundred people on mission? The fact that we are building a new building and God seems to be blessing our church? The fact that our attendance is at an all-time high in Sunday school? Is that where our self-worth comes from? What does our self-worth come from as a church? And then what do we really expect out of life as a church? As a church body, what do we expect out of life? That thousands are going to come forward? That this amount of people are going to be baptized this year? What do we really expect? What is going to make us happy as a church? And here's the last question. Is it Jesus? Is our love for Jesus enough? We're just saying, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. But do you? Or do you love these things that you've listed? Do you love Jesus? And I'm praying, I'm pleading I'm pleading that God would give me a deep love for Jesus. That all of these things that rival Him on a day in and day out basis would just become lesser and lesser and lesser. And that God would put them in their place. Do we as a church, do we still have a passion and a zeal for Jesus? Is that, is that what's motivating all that we're doing right now? Or are we finding ourselves in a place where we're idolizing things, good things may they be, but are we idolizing wrong things? Are our affections misplaced? Are they on Christ? Or are they on all this other stuff? And thankfully, Jesus gives us instructions in verse 5. He says, man, if, if this is you if, you, if we find ourselves in the place of Ephesus, in the Ephesian church, if we find ourselves in that place where maybe we have walked away from our first love, Jesus then does give us instructions in verse says forget what lies in the past and move forward but you know so often man when we remember all that god has done where he has brought us where god kept saying to israel israel remember remember that i have brought you out of the house of slavery remember that i have brought you out of the house of slavery that i've brought you into freedom and you want to go back you want to go back because you're not remembering where i have brought you you want to go back because you have forgotten 
You've forgotten. And, and I think that's what Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus. He says, listen, you have forgotten where I have brought you. Can I just remind you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where you have come from, where they have come from. It says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Listen, church, you were dead. You know what a dead person has to offer? Nothing. Nothing. It says, you were dead in which you, were, in, in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you and I all once lived. Don't think you're above that. We were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, your nature is to be a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4 says, but God... The most beautiful two words in all of the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead, listen to that, even while you were dead, even when you had nothing to offer, made you alive. You were made alive. You were no longer dead. Yet so of us, so much, so many times, so often, you and I walk around like dead people, joyless, grumbling and complaining about all of life's trivialties. Yet you've been made alive. He says, you have been made alive and you've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And it is for by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. See, no matter what you think you can offer God, it's not enough. It's not enough. It is a gift. Did you know a gift cannot be earned? It can only be received. It cannot be taken. You can't take a gift. You can't at Christmas when your lovely spouse or bride or kids give you a gift. You can't take it. You can only receive it. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that humbling? Doesn't that fill you with gratitude? Doesn't it fill you with a love and a zeal for Jesus, knowing that there was nothing that you offered Him, yet only you can receive from Him? It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. This is beautiful. For we are His workmanship, crafted, being crafted, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him, that we should walk in Him. Can I just remind you where you have come from? And I love celebrities, and I love always when a celebrity says this, man, I'm just remembering where I came from. Just trying to remember where I came from. You know why they say that? So that they would be filled with gratitude for where they are. And that's secular people, more often than not. What if Christians, what if we lived in such a way where we remembered where we came from. Every morning that you, your, your feet hit the floor and you remember that you were dead and you've been made alive. And I cannot imagine that if somebody was raised from the dead that they'd be pretty sad about it. 
I just can't imagine that Lazarus was pretty upset about the fact that Jesus called him out of the grave. I just can't imagine that. I can't imagine that he would just be trudging along in life going, well, here's old Eeyore again. I just can't imagine that. You know what I can't imagine? I can imagine a passionate people. I can imagine an excited people. I can imagine a joyful people. I can imagine a people who could change the world. I think alive people who've been made alive in Christ could change the world. I just do. I just do. And he says, then repent of your idolatry. A young pastor, Matt Chandler, says that the gateway to joy is to own your sin. Listen, here's what I'm asking you to do. This is what I think Jesus is asking us to do this morning. Remember where you have fallen. Acknowledge your idolatry. What is it that you are holding most dear in your life? And if the answer to that question is not Christ, then repent. Acknowledge it. Own it. It's okay. We're all in the same boat. You and I are all idolizing something. And so we acknowledge it. We bring it into the light. We repent of it. And then Jesus calls us to return. Return to the works we did at first. Return to the love that we once had that is going to fuel our obedience. That is going to fuel our worshipful obedience. This is not a begrudging obedience. This is not a begrudging works. This is not something that you and I just have to do, but rather it's something that we get to do because we are made alive. (laughs) We get to return to our works that we did at first, not because we have to, but because we get to. Because we, again, have been made alive. You've been made alive. And then Jesus gives us in verse 5 and 6, He gives us the consequences for our disobedience. That's always how it works, right? Sin has consequences. Our disobedience always have consequences. And Jesus says, if not, so that is, if you do not remember, if you do not repent, if you do not return, He says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What Jesus is saying there is, I will remove your influence. And not only will I remove your influence, but goodness, I will remove your church. See, all of these good things don't outweigh your love for me. All of these great and awesome things that you're doing in church right now, those are great things and I love them and I'm grateful that you're doing them. But they do not outweigh your love, your affection, your passion, your zeal for me. And so Jesus says, here's the consequences. I'll remove your church. I will take away your lampstand. I will take away your influence. And then thankfully... In verse 7, Jesus gives us a promise. For those who want to obey, here's your promise. For those who want to follow Him in obedience, who want to remember, repent, and return, here is your promise. Here's you and I. This is, this is for you and I. He who has an ear, if you've got an ear, listen up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. 
I love this. I love this imagery that Jesus gives us here. Revelation is beautiful. It's such a beautiful book of, uh, of imagery. But what I love specifically about this is it is mirroring that of the Garden of Eden. You remember when, they, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they were cast out of the garden. And they were no longer allowed to come back into the garden to eat of the tree of life. What you have here is a reversal. You have a reversal of that. Jesus says, for the one who conquers, I will grant that you may eat of the tree of life and the paradise of God, that you will spend eternity with the king and that you will get to eat of the tree of life. What a gift. What a joy. What Jesus is encouraging us here this morning is, listen, there's nobody on the face of this planet that I love more than my bride. She is beautiful, she's amazing, she's the mother of my children, and she is killing it as a mama. I mean, she's just doing an amazing job as a mom. And if I love my wife that much, can you imagine how much Jesus loves his bride? Can you imagine how much Jesus, how crazy he is about his bride? And here he is meeting us where we are and saying, listen, eyes on me, eyes on me, heart on me. I want you to have more of me because when you get more of me, you're going to have more joy and you're going to have more peace and you're going to have more patience and you're going to have more kindness and you're going to have all that you need in this life. Oh, and by the way, at the end of life, you're going to get to eat of the the tree of life and you're going to enjoy me for all eternity. Man, what a beautiful promise to believe. What a beautiful encouragement for those who obey And the reality is, here's the historical irony of the church in Ephesian, or the the Ephesian church. By about 250 AD, the church in Ephesus ceased to exist. So there's a historical irony here. Historical irony. See, by about 250 AD, the church in Ephesus was gone. Now we can say, well, maybe it was leadership. Maybe it was the culture. Maybe those fierce wolves who came in amongst them. Maybe they finally just took them astray. Maybe it was that they just thought they were good enough. That they were fine where they were. Maybe it was that they weren't content in God, but rather they were content in and of themselves and where they were as a church. Or maybe... Maybe it was that they just lost their first love and they lost their way. Maybe it was that they didn't remember, repent, and return. Maybe it was simply them doing everything that they can to be obedient to God that they missed the most important thing, which was to love Him and to allow their love for Him to fuel their obedience to move them to obedience, to move them to love God and to love people as themselves. See, my point this morning is this, that our love for Christ is the foundation for everything in life. It is the foundation for everything in this life. Our doing must always be influenced by one thing, our being in love with Jesus. Our doing in this life must be influenced by only one thing. Our being in love 
with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Well, God, I love this church. I'm grateful, incredibly grateful for this church. I'm grateful for these people as I stand here on the first pew, Lord, just looking out at this choir and the beautiful saints that we have in this church. Lord, I can't help but think, what a great church. What a great people. But God, what if we've lost our first love? And what if we are no different than the church in Ephesus, what if in all of the midst of all this good stuff that, God, you were doing here, what if we have lost our first love? God, I pray that you would reveal that to us. God, that we would remember. God, we would remember that we were once dead. We are now alive. God, that it is only by your grace, Lord, that we get another shot at life. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, I... I don't know where we are this morning, but I just, in this time of reflection, in this time of invitation, in this time of response, God, I just pray that you would deal with your people. God, for anyone in this room who does not know Christ, man, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And God, I pray that you would give them a boldness and a courage to come to the front and to say, man, it's time for me to love Jesus. I've been doing a lot of stuff but I've been missing the one thing that matters the most, and that's Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. If that is you, if you do not know Christ, listen, there would be nothing more that I'd be ecstatic for is to see you come to know Jesus, to see you fall in love with Jesus. And so as you stand, you come. You come.